0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Mealtime Brothers. Indeed, because I spoke to guitarist Simon Nelson very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and those moments. And also, just as a big shout-out, Cherry Red Records can be released in some material, I think obscure B-sides and such like. Early 2023, so do check that out, Milltown Brothers. Anyway, look, Simon, tell us about your early musical awakening in life. Tell
1: us everything, tell us now. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, a very similar time to you, uh, David. I, I was born in 63, and so that, all that glam rock thing, I, I was exposed to that, and David Bowie, particularly through my brother Mark and our cousins down in, uh, when we used to go down to Somerset, they were huge huge fans of David Bowie, and I think he was playing in, in um, Taunton in about 73 or 74, and they all went to that, and they were relating the tales of, of you know going to see bowie and obviously what must have been quite a smallish venue at that yes. time i suppose in taunton um so yeah very much that but and um, my big brother's influences was it was like from on the one hand lindisfarne actually i love very much actually from the folky side and then right through prog rock and wishbone ash and emerson lake and palmer and um Yes. <laughs> but it was yes. transformed when that punk came through actually. But but it's that, strange. That was, it's it's yeah. strange
0: you mentioned those bands because um my brother's seven years older than me and he was perfect. He went to university somewhere in that period, but he was into the prog rock world of uh, Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, the solo worker oh, Rick stuff, Wakeman. Yeah. And um yeah, I just I would sneak into his room and listen to all these records with great enthusiasm. But he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath as yeah. well so yeah. that was that was always good. Steel Eye Span was his go-to folk band he didn't he didn't do Lindy's Farm but I do also love Steel Eye Span as well yeah. not just the irritating single but um yes it's funny isn't it so you had an older brother who was a massive influence.
1: Yeah big influence, an influence on, on learning the guitar as well he, he was the first one in the family to have a guitar and right now I, I used to you know, plink around in it, but um, it wasn't until I was 15, 16 till I really tried to learn it properly, but it was uh, me and Mark's influence who who wasn't in the Miltown Brothers. Matthew, obviously, is singer of the Miltown Brothers, and my younger brother, but uh, yeah, Mark had an influence at that time, no, no doubt about it.
0: Yes, and were your parents at all kind of, you know, were they into the music or yeah
1: well my, my dad um used to play the piano a lot and just to sort of relax as a we had a piano in the house and um he would play and um all sorts of things and mo- mostly songs from the sort of 50s and 60s shows and things like that but uh, he, he used to like beatles like the for example the fool on the hill and very melodic and nowhere man and things like that and and that kind of, I think that tapped that kind of me- me- sense of melody and songwriting must yes. have somehow sort of infused in in both Matthew and myself. So yeah, from from to a certain extent, yes, and um, yeah, my mum was my mum was an enthusiastic singer at church and things like like that but uh, well um, yes
0: parents parents would often just go to church didn't they on a very regular basis or they'd feel guilty about not going to church and then have to tell you about how guilty they felt because something bad would happen to the village so um yes Yes. (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting one i was a bit too young for punk to be honest and also i came from the countryside in east anglia punk didn't really happen it was um it was much more sort of motorbikes and mopeds and status quo and a bit of rock but status quo were the kind of the main go-to band really in our area so punk didn't sort of kind of come out at all so Mm -hmm. what was it what was when did you leave did you oh you didn't leave school because you went to university didn't you yeah so
1: i was i was at school for from 74 to 81 and sort of in in the fourth form I i think i remember very much being um sort of turned on to particularly probably more new wave than punk i should say um there was there was a compilation album called i think it was called new wave and it had um you know stuff on it like um oh what was it um i'm trying to think like uh new york dolls the, the dead boys and and i remember particularly um shake some action by the flaming groovies was was a song that I think was a sort of mid seventies, but it came It was sort of part of that, and it was that sort of janglier more sort of type of American garage band kind of sound that really hooked me sort of initially from a sort of guitar playing and melodic perspective so yeah there a lo- you know love the energy of punk and things like that, but it was also more the sort of popular side of things as well but yes I, I particularly I do. liked um yeah so uh and then then the undertones and the jam and um, Stiff Hill Fingers, The Only Ones, and th- th- there was more that kind of, rather than the really hardcore sort of like uh, three or four chord stick your fingers up kind of punk. I was yes. a bit... <laughs> bit, 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 to stick two fingers up, more, more, um, more the melodic side of things.
0: Well, I think in a way, you know, because you mentioned the band, I wondered if you were the um, another girl, another planet. I mean, there was there was there was a, gu- there was a gu- guitar solo in there, which we all oh, just loved. Magic. It is magic. And, and the flaming groovies, you know, shake some action again yes. is, is kind of magic. And I do also love, you know, I remember being quite young at the time and listening to Blue Oyster Cult and things. Yes. Oh, it's just such a great song. So I, I I think that, you know, the enjoyment of a guitar solo was always, it was never far. I still wanted to hear something kind of yeah. excellent without having to be Jimi Hendrix, which I did in, also enjoy at a certain phase in the 80s. Me
1: too, very much so. I was going to say we, we had... Um... The, the great privilege to play with the Flaming Groovies is in in Holland. Actually, uh, it was a, a live radio sort of session, and they played Another Girl, Another Planet, and it was fabulous. And, uh, I you know, know it could, just sort it, of watching in awe, as you? Know, so that was that waiting great. for
0: that moment, isn't yeah, it? Really?
1: The, you yeah, you know the, the 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 great guitar solo. Yes, starting from the bottom of the neck right up to the top, and you know, know.
0: it's just it's good. I mean, prog rock was good, but it was um, I don't know. I do like there's a there's a yes song. It does go on for about eleven minutes into the heart of the sunrise, and you some I sometimes if if I'm a bit excited but a bit bored at the same time, skip to the last two minutes where it gets really excited. It's a bit like Fleetwood Max The Chain, isn't it? You just kind of go, yeah, that's great, it's great. Let's get to the bit where they just kind of hit it into gear, you know. Prog rock does have its moments, but sometimes it's like, and. And, yeah, our, right, we're away, this is good. Let's get
1: back to the song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, suddenly Rick Wakeman wants to do a solo and then Chris Squire wants to do yeah. a solo and it's like, yeah, this is great, I'm so impressed. But then, you know, I mean, one thing that was kind of shaped a lot of us was the kind of the, the 79 period, Thatcher gets in and then we had the Falkland War and then we had the minor strike and then we also have you know, Greenham Common and a few years later there was other bits and pieces like Red Wedge. How did that sort of affect your kind of, yeah. did, did that all come into your consciousness at no, that stage? It did
1: very much because uh, I was at Nottingham Union, obviously, and with the miners' strike, um, that was very hot uh, in that mining area, Nottinghamshire, and and I think there were i remember seeing there used to be a very large coal mine just as you leave nottingham just as you're going out towards the m1 and i think there were flying pickets there i remember driving past it and then there'd be a lot of charity gigs at the uni and you know, um, we got quite into the Redskins at the time. Do you remember those guys? Um, oh,
0: yeah. Neither Washington nor Moscow. What happened yeah. to What happened to Christine? Yeah.
1: Well, yes. I mean, and 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 there was that sensibility, and you know, um, you know, around the university, and you know, around students and and gigs at that time. And that's just when I, my first band was sort of like sort of uh, formed up on the campus at Nottingham in '83 um the word association was uh, uh, as we were talking about and we we started playing at that time and uh playing around nottingham then um i remember we we did a battle of the bands and and i think we came second but janice long was um she was adjudicating and she liked us and so she gave us a session and uh, and that obviously exposed us to, uh, to a bit more of traveling around the country and seeing you know uh, you know elements in london of you know as you mentioned about uh, you know, Thatcher and the way things were and how difficult things were for people at that time. So, um, yeah, 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 it did. It did you know, being students, student, you're a little bit mollycoddled, aren't you? But um, nevertheless, I think there was a, there was an exposure to it uh, very much. And
0: particularly well, yeah. when
1: we, we we went to live in London and we, we, as a band, we tried to make it down there in 86 and we were playing very much uh, uh, <laughs> with that backdrop yeah, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the London circuit, yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely. So it was it was the sort of it was the Nottingham period that you you formed the word association. That's right, yeah. So yeah. That was it. And were these from people who would also all come to university as well from around the country?
1: They they, they were initially Ian uh, the bass player was at Nottingham with us and then we would go on tour in the south of France in the summer to play a lots of um you know as you do. To, it's one thing you you've got the sunshine too you in you know, a band playing music and you know three that you're young and having a great time we were so we did that for four summers but in the second summer our drummer fell out with with us and he left and so we had to find a, a drummer locally we 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 hooked up with jean uh, who was a French guy from Bezier and um uh, he joined us and, and and came back to England actually for a couple of years and played with us, um, and ended up being the drummer on the on the single that has appeared on this Cherry Red
0: Cherry Red um, compilation C eighty five, which is kind of yeah. Mary Mary, which is your
1: Mer- Mary Mary. Yes. <laughs> I never thought I'd ever hear that song ever again, but uh, it, was, yes. it was nice to to have that to to have it recognised. I mean, it's um, it's a bit of a bit of a thrash, but you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's fun.
0: I know. Well, it's great actually. I I do like all this archiving that's going on at the moment. And there was there was a cherry red had been putting out a lot of great compilations. And there was somebody who was from the Sheffield scene, and they were talking about a very early band. And I looked, you know, when I was doing the interview, and went, "My God, you know, you have got a track on that compilation." And they were they were a little bit astounded, and you know, it's like I thought no one would have ever found it because you you went to Western Supermire to record.
1: We we did to record it at my um, cousin's husband's studio so there was a sort of family connection and um yeah it was a it was a sort of self-financed record and uh, you know we, we we i think we pressed 500 and he got it he got i think he got a little bit of local air praying and, and it didn't quite re- make it to john peel level but we tried but i remember going down to the uh broadcast house and sort of waiting outside to see if he naively would walk out after his show so we could hand it to him but that uh didn't happen but that um, dream
0: didn't quite happen but Billy Bragg happened. had a very similar experience didn't he when he was listening and John Peel wanted a I don't know he said god I really fancy an Indian takeaway and then Billy Bragg quickly went to the Indian shop and bought you know, a restaurant or whatever, not restaurant, takeaway and bought him one and gave it to him. And, you know, that was the anecdote that Billy tells. So yeah. there are a lot of those stories, aren't there? There was another one yeah. with the soup dragon saying that they would, they were asked to come and do a John Peel session. They said, well, well, that's great, but we can't afford it. And John then gave him the money. And then years later, Sean from the band sort of tried to give him the money back and um it was quite a sweet story so um yes he was a he was a good guy wasn't he so then yeah so so when you were at the what did you study at the university i,
1: I, did, I did french uh, so uh, hence the um obviously gravitating towards the south of france in the summer and um and having the french drummer on board was was helpful for my studies as well so i could uh could speak yes. french with him so oh there were these strong um uh, Bézier accent so, um, so it was uh, it was uh, it was um, no it was great it was great to have uh, someone someone like that in the band with a different perspective and sort of less hang-ups on various things or more hang-ups on others but it was very interesting to, to have a French guy in the band it was well good.
0: yes it was the 80s we all suddenly loved Betty Blue and Diva didn't we we just wanted Sorry. to watch, watch those yeah. films on repeat and try and be all angsty and drink coffee from a bowl so um yeah. we all did it didn't we uh <laughs> so when you knew did you have a was that a four-year degree you know one of those ones it where was had one yeah <laughs> and uh, in,
1: in the third year I spent it and in, uh, in Paris and um I worked as an, a teaching assistant but uh Ian the bass player came along <laughs> with me and we, we continued the band in Paris and um that was fun. That was great. We had played some good gigs and then we'd go to the south of France in the summer and play. Yes. Uh, yeah, so um, – and it was really towards the end of that Matthew, obviously the singer with the Milton brothers, he he came along in the summer. Uh, he was still at school in 85, 86, 87, but he would come down in the summer and he would sing with us and, that, and he, he had his own band at school as well. But he and I started obviously then to play at first first on stage together in in those times with the word association um and particularly in 87 we spent the whole summer in the south of france with matthew you know singing lead on you know half of the songs and me on on half of the others so yeah
0: god i know what's what's really boggling from doing this show is that the commitment that people had during that time was quite amazing it was there was some sort of serious time and effort and uh energy put into it and i know you mentioned that being molly molly coddled as a sort of a a student but i mean okay you got your grant paid and you got some money and various other things but actually everyone lived quite poorly at that stage you are
1: right yeah maybe i'm seeing that for the perspective now of having two kids at university (laughs) (laughs) they are molly coddled but um yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, you're right. Particularly in our fourth year when we were living in Lois Avenue in Nottingham, and it was like four lads, and you know, not a lot of money, not a lot of washing up, not a lot of um, sort of looking after ourselves. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. When I think back, perhaps you're right. Yeah, I think um, maybe it was a bit grimmer than the, than looking back through rose tinted spectacles. Well, it was
0: point. it it was kind of glorious, but and you could only do it when you were young. But the the winters were cold, and no one put yeah. central heating on, and we all sat around in you know army and navy boots and sort of big socks and big coats we didn't take coats off and i just you know i remember that scene in with nell and i when he goes to the you know the, the sink and it's like god yeah we didn't wash up we used to just go and get something and just kind of try and clear a mug clean a mug and then you know make a drink you know for yourself on a on a sort of cheap kettle you know with fingerless gloves and a scarf i mean it was pathetically no it wasn't pathetic but we were you know i remember the gas bill came and it was like 15 pound for the winter and that was that would have just been the ring on the cooker there was no there was nothing else it yeah. was um it was like god that's hundreds who's put the heating on it's like actually we had nothing so um we were smelly basically let's face yeah. it
1: I, I think that the hardest year we had was when we went to live in London. We, we, um, John and I, because uh, Ian was still doing a master's degree in Nottingham, and, and John and I went to live in, in a bed sitting in Finchley, which was really rough, actually. That was a, a very cold winter and that was quite harsh, actually. So, uh, yes, that's see what you mean. Yeah. Unfortunately, Ian, uh, Ian, the bass player, has unfortunately died in the last six weeks. And ju- just after that, uh, re- you know, after that, um, track was on the compilation album so that was very sad for him. I know it's pretty horrible but uh, yeah poor Ian yeah anyway but um
0: it's just horrendous isn't it it at the moment I'm sort of I'm getting used to being in my late 50s with
1: yeah (laughs) it's just horrible isn't it (laughs)
0: It's a whole mother world. The calendar hasn't got gigs. It's got medical appointments and picking (laughs) up prescriptions and stuff like that. It's the whole new world. And as for your parents, crazy. But then, I mean, what happened to the the word association then in sort of 80? 80, Because the the single came out in 85. 85,
1: yeah. So um, 85. And then we... um, we continued, at, I did my finals at Nottingham and uh, we, we just kept the band going. We would go and play where we could. We played a lot in Wales for some reason. I don't know quite why, but we used to. And then we went to live in, in London in at the beginning of, at, at, sorry, in the autumn of 86 and spent that year trying to make it on the London circuit. And he ended up doing okay. We'd I think we'd play with a couple of decent bands. I think we'd play with Mighty Mighty, Mighty actually. I think we might play with, yeah, yes. we'd, we'd play with them at Dingwalls. We did. We, we did. Did you ever
0: go to Anna McGee's um, The Living Room and those kind of little venues that he'd started I don't recall,
1: in? I don't recall that one. Um, I, I, I think it was like Hern uh, Hill Half Moon at Hern Hill, the Rock Garden, I'm trying to think where else we played, the Cricketers. Um, There's one in Ham, in Hammersmith who used to play a lot, the Kentish Town, Time right. Boston, all those kind of places. And I think, did we make the marquee? I don't think we... They might have done 100 Club and things like that. and We got kind of... People were kind of interested, but it never really happened for us, unfortunately. So uh, after that summer in 87, when Matthew had come on board, I'd listened to one of his demos that he'd done with his band, Aspire, which Nian and, um, uh, and James uh, were also in, who went on to be in the Milltown Brothers. And there was a particular song on there called Salford Lady that... Um, matthew had written and the, the the lads had done i i just thought it was fantastic and matthew's clearly a, a, his voice just cuts through so much better than mine does and uh i began to understand where my place might be <laughs> um yes. and, and rightly so because uh they, they were fabulous and I, I i jumped ship and and i, I wanted to you'd be part of their gang so and they were a lot younger as well so that, <laughs> that was good so um no we we, we um um it ended up being a song called Sweet Nothing that we released as well as the Milltown Brothers, but Matthew had written it as a 16 or 17-year-old. Uh, it was just a great track. And, um, yeah, that, so we uh, we then sort of started playing more with Matthew, James and Nean, who were at Manchester Poly in the autumn of 87, and that was the start of the Milltown Brothers. Yes. Um, yeah. So
0: I think Sweet Nothing. Actually, that was a song by a, a slightly smooth jazz soul band, wasn't it? That's Working right, it was.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's working with yeah, very different. Album. <laughs> so it was with a, a very sort of three or four chords on in in the key of G with a cello part on it, and um, just a very soulful uh, performance by Matthew. Really, yeah.
0: yes, I think they they were going for a slightly more sort of earthy. Chardi yeah. <laughs> vibe weren't they because actually for me you know looking back i didn't realize there were quite so many tribes in the 80s and different scenes which has been quite amazing just be- and also what i've noticed and you probably noticed as well suddenly the, the kind of the, the lid has been kind of pulled off the sort of 80s scene and suddenly every there's books there's films there's documentaries being made about all these bands that You know, it's just kind of fantastic. I mean, it is kind of archive, and I know there's a certain nostalgia to it, but then, you know, in lockdown, everyone went into their attic. But then, obviously, there has just been a lot of people working on their bits and pieces, and it has just been brilliant to see what happened during the 80s. And what I notice as well as a sort of a fan, I suppose, is that between 83 to 87 was a kind of glorious period. That was the years of the Smiths, wasn't it? And there was like that great moment. And when they kind of broke up, they felt like the party had slightly changed again. Mm -hmm. Not quite as drastic as when Hendrix, Joplin and Morrison died. But, you know, it was a little bit like, oh, my God, the Smiths are broke. And then the next wave of those 16, 18-year-olds came along and the new drug ecstasy came along. And there was that kind of scene and the orb and guy called Gerald and 808 State. so so musically things start started changing a lot when you formed the milltown brothers didn't you
1: yeah I mean it, when we first um when we first started playing together I, I think we were more influenced by the waterboys Bob Dylan uh REM um that that kind of um uh, the the birds as well a little bit and and it was a bit more and and you too as well I think you too and, and and bands like that I think more at that time and so our first um, outings were, were were more rocky I would say like the first single um, roses uh, which was out on, on in out in um, eventually in eighty nine I think um it's quite it's quite a, a you know bruce springsteen s sort of kind of rocky kind of number and um a lot of the, the music we were influenced by then w- w- wasn't really that sort of um kind of uh acid housey kind of inspired baggy kind of you know the stone roses kind of thing w- w- was coming was coming in at that time but uh when we started out, we weren't particularly like that. We were more like REM and sort of a bit more yes. really.
0: Because I so. remember there was that sort of North London scene, wasn't there, with the Faith healers and Silverfish and um there was my bloody Valentine and early yeah. years of Carter. So did I mean being in London, did you also slightly get washed or not washed out but sort of taken we with did. the
1: tide? We we did. Um we we um we got a pollution deal at, at the end of each. Yeah, we'd been spotted by Steve lamack playing at the time box at the uh, uh in, in Kentish Town, Bull and Gate, and he wrote a great review, and and all of a sudden we got a lot of interest in the sort of summer of 88 through to the autumn of 88. And uh, you know, we were being sort of tipped alongside the Sundays and, and things like that, and really, really we got the we got quite a lot of interest, particularly from publishing from a development side, and we got picked up by EMI at the end of 88 and then we released and so so I was based in London working in London whereas the other lads were were in Manchester but we kind of focused on London because obviously that's where you would get your record deal and we tried to get as many gigs there as possible yes. and so yeah we did There were we were around the sundays we were around my bloody valentine yeah we 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 played with them at dingwalls as well uh, and you know where you know we were quite different played with the chesterfields i remember playing quite a lot with them that they they were coming more out of the c86 but there was that transfer over but yeah we we were certainly uh playing uh, um in london in that sort of period before the big manchester scene broke uh later on um yes more in, more in, yeah, in but then in
0: 89 we had the the great i mean john peel played that sort of compilation sub pop 100 didn't he in this certain bands on it including Nirvana, which kind of, you know, they just brought Bleach out. And I remember seeing them at the art centre supporting TAD and suddenly that kind of grunge scene had started to appear. But before that, we had Sonic Youth and the Buttholes and um, Huskadoo bands that I sort of thought were amazing. So so suddenly... as
1: well, in a way, I suppose. The Pixies were there in that period, weren't they? I mean, I know it's slightly more... Sort of more, um, I don't know, what you can, a bit more pop sort of sensibility, but but still had that hard edge to it, didn't it? We really liked the Pixies, actually. They, they, remember that was eighty nine.
0: Uh, well, they were touring with uh, Throwing Muses, weren't they? On yeah, the floor, so
1: we, which... yeah, and we ended up playing with them actually. Very in in um, was it nineteen ninety one at. Uh, Crystal Palace Bowl, so and that was great. My <laughs> so,
0: God, you did, you did a good. So then, as 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 the decade had sort of come to a close, and the next one, you brought your second single was "Which Way Should I Jump," wasn't yes. it? Yes,
1: yeah. So that 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 was, um, it was actually. Um, I guess the the um, EMI was starting to ask some questions then, sort of mid 1989. They signed us at the end of '88, and, and EMI I think wanted us to get signed so. Uh, their faith in their publishing investment would obviously go on and, and um, be validated by a, a major record label. And I think that 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 was always that you know we were an indie band and we we put out "Which Way Should I Jump" out uh, on Big Round Records as as an indie uh, as an indie label. So um, that came out in in sort of like the summer autumn of '89, and we recorded that at Strawberry Studios, where the record label was based in Stockport. Right, and that really opened doors for his people. I think we, we we were quite well received with roses, and did okay with it. But which way should I jump? I think it was either single of the weekend, enemy, or there or thereabouts, and started to get a fair bit of airplay then, and um, and some very good reviews, and and did a big tour throughout that autumn of eighty nine.
0: God, that's yeah. magic, isn't it? Yeah, that
1: is well, good. Was was, was Strawberry
0: Studios? Was that owned by a guy from Ten CC? Was that
1: yes? One of... it, it, it originally, was yeah. That was their sort of home studio, and um, I think I think they I don't know if they still owned it at the time, but um, uh, uh, the, 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 we we recorded there. We they, they were starting sort of like a, a record label, and that's where we got really our a, a first really break for recording wise. Um, in 1988 through them so it was a great studio with great great atmosphere in there um, well yes
0: absolutely yeah. I could imagine with that did you yeah. see the book which I think Paul Hanley brought out about Manchester recording studios which is um quite a nice little page turner which I don't well, have next to me
1: no I maybe I should I'd, I'd look into that but um yeah it's so uh, so um yeah we uh, we recorded there and I think that's where the happy mondays were recording and uh, um as well so sort of around that time so that that was exciting to be to start to get a feel of being part of, of of being in Manchester and around sort of Manchester bands as well as going down to London and, and and playing as well, so that was that was an interesting period.
0: On a slightly different level on Manchester, because that's been quite well documented by a guy called something Davis, I think his name was. He um he's been sort of bringing out a lot of these kind of beautiful kind of little booklets, almost like fanzines. But he he photographed a lot of Manchester and this kind of amazing estate called Whom did you sort of did and apparently there was a sort of a vague space for sort of either practicing or recording i know quite a lot of indie bands from the 80s kind of lived there because it was i think it was almost yeah. a squat but um was that something that you ever sort of oh, had that slightly gone by the time you were doing stuff in manchester
1: i don't recall that because we, although we we were on a very early on a compilation called manchester north of england i don't know if you know that one that was that a blue cassette it, it was. It was. It's. I can't think it was on the, the front cover of it. Um, it was quite well, sort of received, and quite sort of well. It was kind like of the start of that burgeoning Manchester scene of that the, that particular Manchester scene. Obviously, there've been other ones, but um, it was we. It, our song "Janice is Gone" was on it, but the bands like James were on it. Um, it well, Spiral Carpets, things like that, in '88. So that's quite early. Just you know on the cusp of the of Manchester and things like that so and there were some quite different sounding bands on that so we were in Manchester although I don't specifically record that that space that you're talking about I remember we used to go and rehearse in a place in Ancoats I think which but uh, I don't know if it was particularly specifically um
0: yes that,
1: but it's always I a mean, great city to to be in a band in
0: it's yes always, I would imagine so many great
1: it, venues and uh yeah, it was a good opportunities for for young bands at the time.
0: Well, I know Cherry Red brought out this seven CD box set of um, Manchester bands. Yeah. I don't know what year it started and finished, but it was quite impressive. So, um, yes, yes. yes, I mean, coming from Norwich, we didn't we didn't have such a luxury but, of kind of bands.
1: <laughs> it was a good Norwich scene at one. I remember talking about the 80s, the, the Farmers Boys and the Higsons. Absolutely, um, they were. And serious drinking, as I recall. You've got them all there, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> there wasn't another one. Um, but I remember, yeah, I remember seeing the Hixons. I think when I was at UNIP. Um, and yeah, I mean that was a, a that was a scene. You know, We, yes. we it was a good place to go and play in Norwich. It was um,
0: oh yeah. Well I mean as as a place because we have the art center and there was the UEA yeah. and eventually the waterfront as well. Yeah. And it was quite sweet because I talked to a member of the Farmers Boys who signed to EMI on the same day as Kajugu. So they had a oh, little group photograph together. Uh, so, um,
1: fantastic. Yeah. They
0: they look quite different, didn't they? Um yeah. but I thought it was quite a nice little story. Um so yes. So then when did you I mean obviously the singles, but then you brought out the album, um Slinky, yeah. quite quickly, didn't you?
1: Yeah, so, so we were signed to A&M in, uh, I think, um, what was it, sort of March 18, 1990, and then we put a, an indie single out, well, the indie sort of like sponsored by, with A&M's money, uh, which seems to me, I think, in about in, in May or June of that year, then started recording over the summer of 1990 in Bath and and London, and the record was pretty much ready, at the end of uh, of 1990, and it was released in March 91. Um, with which way should I jump? So actually, no. Apple Green was the first single released from it, it was in uh, sort of in the autumn of 90, and then which way should I jump? Re-recorded and re-released in um, January February 91. Then the album in March 91. Yeah.
0: Yes, and it's got a great sound. Are you still? I mean, that's now bizarrely 31 years ago, isn't it? Yes yes no, it's, uh, no
1: it, it was it was great fun to do As um i think i think we've been touring uh most of the songs for about sort of 12 months and and it, as a band goes in to pre-production for for, for that we did with dead megan the the uh producer on that we were pretty tight we were pretty ready you know particularly the rhythm section you know and and and, and yeah we could go into it with confidence and um there were a couple of songs written at the last minute i think is it real the the final song was in in the final sessions during the pre-production phase so but um it was a it was a great experience actually and um Yes, in Bath Moles, uh, in it was, it was super being there, particularly because it was a nightclub, obviously underneath the recording <laughs> studio. So when we finished sessions, we'd uh, quite often be going down to the nightclub and the the great bands passing through while we were recording. Like I remember Blur, they, they would they played um, right for example in the in the Moles Club, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a really fabulous time that that summer and autumn of nineteen ninety.
0: Yeah, um, and for but, most of the band, was that your uh, your full time focus and ha- uh, hustle? There was no it was
1: it was at that time. Yeah, we uh, I left uh, when we got the publishing deal. I was working in London, and I left that to focus uh, on on the band at the end of '88. And the other lads quit university then, and we you know we used some of the publishing money to pay as a small salary Excellent. throughout. 89 and bought a van so we could travel around got a whole new back line of gear so you know switch from PV to marshall for example at that point so to get the more genuine sort of rock indie sound so from a guitar point of view you, you know buy new guitars and things like that and think you've made it but then you're in your long wheelbase transit getting lost in mid wales and Maybe you haven't made it after (laughs) all.
0: God, you've ticked all the boxes. Because it's interesting, having done this show for quite a while, most bands have a five-year narrative, don't they? Of a certain, you know, when they're a certain age, the twelve-month honeymoon period, possibly John Peel giving them a play and John Peel session, the first album, the Transit Van around all the little art centres and alternative nights in the UK, which is handy, and then that tricky kind of second, third album where everyone's yeah. just a bit exhausted that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i
1: mean we, we we were i mean we had a lovely period actually We we when we did have i guess we did have a top 40 hit with which we should i jump which was you know it was in the top 40 and the album was in the top 30 so you know we did have a certain certain level of profile the the gigs got bigger we supported the laws on tour and then we went to the us with the wonder stuff on an extensive tour actually and got to japan and europe and it it was fabulous it was a really uh, a wonderful experience and a great time to be you know in your 20s and you
0: yes not really well, have any
1: regrets when you have that kind of uh, experience it really was great
0: oh it's brilliant that you managed to do the us as well as um, yeah japan yeah we as well.
1: did a couple of tours and me and matthew i think we did a radio tour or press tour as well so fantastic yeah we, actually, we were gonna <laughs> i think they had high hopes for us in the us but yeah I man, we, it's, we, it's yeah. always
0: so tricky though isn't it what's gonna click because at that stage there was a lot of men in czech shirts weren't there sort of with that long hair thing talking about you know issues of small town america and you know problems with their stepdad and being a bit lonely you know that kind of gr- that kind of grunge scene that you sometimes watch on instagram now where yes they just you know with a jack daniels in one hand and it's all a bit
1: yeah i mean i mean i remember we 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 toured at the beginning of the tour of the wonder stuff in in sort of the september october 1991 so we 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 done well with which way should i join which was i think alternative billboard top 10 so it it did alright uh but we played at this um a great gig actually one of my favorites but the, the nirvana were on the on the same uh, you know, on the same booking, and they're playing there sort of three or four um, nightclubs alongside the Fenway um, Baseball Stadium in Boston, and they were in one club, and you knew something was changing when you saw them, and we went to watch them play, and it was electric, and the kids were just moving on from jangle Pop to grunge. It was quite obvious. <laughs> and we, 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 our career was just nose-diving as we watched, the, watched the, them uh, and then, then we had the, the fabulous, uh, then later on we, we had Oasis supporting us. And what as their trajectory launched into the stratosphere, I was just falling off a cliff. So a couple of experiences to, to cherish.
0: Yes. God, it is difficult, isn't it? Because on one level, yeah, the grunge, and then Oasis, you must have wondered. And Oasis,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: You know, we, yes, getting onto that slipstream. So when you came to do the second album, what yeah. was the atmosphere like in the band at that stage?
1: I think very excited. We, we, we. Yeah, as I said, we'd come off this tour in, in the US. We'd had a bunch of songs that we played alongside the Slinky songs that were new songs that we thought had legs, and um, and we were excited to go and record them. And and we went to um, uh, Chipping Norton in the beginning of '92 with a few tracks and and um, uh, with a producer and went in there uh, thinking that you know this would be a continuation of what was gone before, but. You know we 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 then experienced a set of you know pushbacks from the record company throughout ninety two with the demos that we were doing they just weren't happy with them um and and then when that continues to happen there becomes a you start to look at yourself and doubt your own abilities then and also doubt the support of the record company and so that you know and and it culminated in what was really a mishmash of a, an album involved with right. different producers being involved. Uh, with us always seemingly trying to hunt uh, uh, singles rather than being allowed to sort of breathe, I suppose, and do the kind of songs that we wanted to do, uh, I suppose, at that point. Classic second record syndrome for, for a young band.
0: Yes, that is a bit unlucky, isn't it? Because uh, it must be quite yeah. devastating when you present the demos and the band, the label yeah. kind of gives it a... You know, a slight fail, come back and do it again. You think?
1: And, and a, a sense of resentment starts to build then. You know, I remember I remember particularly we would turn up in um, Fulham Palace Road or wherever it was where AM was, and we'd turn up, we are sitting in the van or downstairs where the, the manager would go up with the demo, put it in, and come down and say, un, un. <laughs> and another, <laughs> another no from, oh God. And yeah, yeah but uh, we had one, one track though, they were very pleased with it, which was turn off which was one of the singles that they really liked and then we were encouraged to do some um uh, covers of bob dylan songs as well so we did it's all over now baby blue and three other tracks that that they that they really liked and and had relative success so we're in the top 50 with those so but uh unfortunately not enough for us to uh sustain a a career beyond the second record with a m
0: which is right there you go so Sort of 90, 93 94 was this the period where you all sat down and had a this yeah is the end yeah moment. i
1: mean yes yeah. so I, th- I think we played a tour in 93 in the autumn and uh barney our keyboard player decided it had enough of it and fair enough too because it was it's getting a bit of a drag and we tried to keep going because we just signed um another publishing deal actually as well which gave us financially some support if not the distribution. Um, so we did try and continue in 93, 94, 95. I think it was all really that period of the Miltown Brothers really came to an end. Yeah.
0: Right. Even though those, I don't know when the Shine compilations came out, these kind of pop ones, but did you ever think, God, we should just, be able to get something together here and get on this little. Yeah, I
1: mean, we tried. We, we had a, a with, with Nian, Nian uh, our drummer Matthew, and me and Steve Taylor then came on board and we were Milo in, in London in 97 to 2000. And we we got close with that. And I think James had a band, uh, Show Ponies in Lancaster, that was doing very well as well. Barney was doing well with a band called The Rubbish. So everyone was trying and still in the game. Um, and so. You know, we, we we you know we 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 had a a, um, a good bit of success with the Milton Brothers, and obviously had a taste for it. Didn't want to give it up, but the money dries up, so you have to get jobs. But yes. everybody was still yeah. trying to 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 be successful in these different kind of guises. Yeah, yes. The late,
0: so then, then then we had the the great Millennium and the Millennium Bug period and New Labour period. So so then, what happened to the to to sort of make you all come back and reform?
1: really. bit like bad, really. it's a bit like bad news isn't it <laughs> it is yeah I don't know well we're all mates I think that's the thing we all good friends and you can't really give up on that and you know you might fall out a bit musically here and there but ultimately we live some very strong experiences together and and it's very hard to shake those off and I think um we were always writing songs um at the time and, and so we got back together in 2002 and and did uh, a sort of self-financed album rubber band yes and uh, put that out and um you know it did okay you know online we <laughs> pressed up a certain amount of copies did some gigs did a small little tour uh, got i think we were on six music a few times so it it it, it was it revived a few th- memories for a few people but not enough unfortunately to uh, to sustain but i think it, it you know it, it was just enjoyable to get back together
0: yeah absolutely I, th- I think
1: rather than
0: I think with the coming back, I think the thing about that which I've slightly I mean slightly sweep statement, but I think you know at that point, probably your fans are still doing their adult thing and have probably sort of a bit hassled. It's like when you come back thirty years later, yeah. people are like, got a bit more like potentially you know like oh actually i've really missed that band and i don't understand what modern music is and i haven't managed to get into grime and i don't really understand what storms he's singing about and then it's like that thing of oh you know these these a certain amount of nostalgia festivals like shine aren't they and um such kind of you know and certain bands who i think when they tried coming back it was like not many people interested but then they tried and Ten another 10 years passed and it was like oh actually people are quite excited and I think people reevaluate evaluate some of the, the albums and music and think this is actually all right and I'll take my kids as well and also I think with Spotify it's meant that you know 16 year olds are quite excited to discover unknown bands mm-hmm. or new bands that like I was when I was growing up, wanting to get the most obscure 60s bands or 70s bands that no one knew. So that was mine. So I could imagine, you know, as as the decades went, there's a certain amount of interest, as with all these compilations from C-86, C-85, yeah, and then going up to C-91, which is bizarre. So, um, so yes, I, mean, I think the Mealtime Brothers is on C-89, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I think we're on C-89, C-90, I think. We're, we've, we've got Which Way Should I Jump? and seems to me i think he's on and i think we're we're on one of their compilation of the 80s i think roses is on there somewhere as well on, on something as well so, um yes oh, yeah and we we've got i don't know we we've got actually uh coming out on the 16th of december um if you, we've, we've got a uh cherry raider putting out a digital release of our pre-a&m uh stuff it's called um tongue-tied mesmerise it's a lyric from which way should i jump and so it's got about sort of 20 odd tracks of uh, singles demos and b-sides and that's out on the 16th of december
0: fantastic of that. has that was that a project that sort of came about during lockdown where people started thinking i should get some of this stuff sorted out
1: a little bit yes yes it was uh, it's, uh, we got two great guys um jonathan bibi and andy divani who um help us out with our social media stuff. And, and Jonathan had always tried to sort of get us to put together all this very early stuff, the, 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 the very early demos that we are doing it from 87 onwards and the singles and B-sides. And we never got round to it, but in discussion with John Reed at Cherry Red, he very kindly suggested – well, actually, he, he suggested having done the word association thing with C85 – he said, have you thought about putting out all your early stuff? And uh, he said, well, kind of. But And so we've been putting that together over the last sort of six weeks. And uh, yeah, that's so that's out on the 16th of December.
0: Oh, that's lovely. I just, I think it's great. There's another couple of labels. There's one in Preston called Optic Nerve, who've been yes. putting out little bits and pieces. And the Precious Recordings of London, who've been doing John Peel sessions from the 80s and 90s, which it's a labour of love isn't it let's face it but it um, is, yeah. but as 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 a fan we love it but then you take another 10 years for a follow-up album so was it the case that that you just all then right that was great let's just go back and get the day job sorted again
1: teaching it's, it's, children come along and things like <laughs> that you know. <laughs> you know so we've all got kids and uh, getting getting through all that and um and then he was he was a bit of a sort of like opportunity uh, J- james was was living he, he sort of part time james the bass player um uh, w- was spending some time in spain and he had he 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 uh, uh, and we've be, we had been sort of tying with writing a few songs and what have you so and he got some very good good pricing on some studio time in a, in um a, in a studio near granada in the south so what's not to like about going out to Grenada for two weeks to try and do some tunes. So, so we went out there in uh, I think it was 2014, um, and uh, at this point, some Matthew had written a bunch of songs, and you know, I had a very strong feeling. I think uh, there's a a strong sense of family in, in the lyrically, and you know, bringing up kids and different life stage. And I think you know, we all felt and and it resonated with us, the rest and other members of the band, and. There was this opportunity to go to Spain, so we took some time off work, and that ended up being Long Road, which came out in 2015. Which uh, which actually did get a bit of traction. Actually, people uh, we got some quite quite good press on that, and uh, Long Road itself has been played quite quite a bit. Um, and um, we had a pedal steel on it uh, on on Gary played on that uh, from 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 the Lancaster area, who's really brilliant pedal pedal steel player and that gave us a different sound and uh i, I think i think we, we did the, the shine uh in um down in minehead at right. the end to so sort of promote it. and uh personally that was disastrous because my oh, my amplifier blew up behind me it didn't work and then i put loads of guitar through the fallback schoolboy error and it was just disastrous feedback <laughs> nightmare but it was great to, to do that again and um, uh, hopefully did, my nightmare didn't spoil it for the rest of the oh, band yes. but uh, you know um, that's what it that's what happens when you get get a bit out of sort of out, out of step with not playing live very often <laughs> it's yes it's like that but that, no that was fun that was fun to do that so uh that was us back again in the late 40s rather <laughs> so so yeah, so that was a high high uh, yeah. Some good reasons for that record. I think you know lyrically spiritually, Matthews sort of had a vision for that. And um uh, we ended up being being pretty proud of that one, yeah. Actually,
0: and then it's interesting because then you bring an album out, sort of the first year of lockdown. Was this a project that you were doing? you know 1819 that you you sort of thought this is quite nice let's do yes let's it, do.
1: Was, it mm, yeah you're right it was about 2018 2019 um um i th- i think i initially again matthew he keeps kind can have spurts of of creativity and i think this was a period of songs that he felt uh, very strongly about i think nostalgic. leaves thinking about you know, the time when we were in the band and uh, he wrote the song Stockholm about being on tour, um, you know, and being in Stockholm and how it's sort of I think reliving a uh, youthful experiences of, of being in, in a band and now he's shifting into his fifties and with kids and it was I think that that perspective. So again it was a creative kind of channel yes. uh, from him that, that drove that one forward. And uh we where did, we were... where
0: did you record that one?
1: We actually recorded that at uh, James the bass player studio, and James kind of produced it. So James is in a, a band called Greenheart, and he does a lot of his own recordings, and they, they, they do pretty well. And so James took some time out of that, and uh, we recorded that in um, 2019, and t- t- just before COVID hit, actually, we stopped the recording in, in about sort of be January, February 2020. 2020. Yes, and then mixed it over that whole period and, and and it eventually came out i think in 2021 wasn't
0: it I think right it was. so there's one track on it which is quite fascinating late 60s mm-hmm. californian hippie commune how did this song come about because that's quite the title and um i've always been a bit keen on sort of hippie communes especially from the 60s so um mm-hmm. where, where did this one was this one of matthews
1: yes yeah yes one of matthews and i, I think he, i think he was trying to or we we, we uh, Lyrically, I think he wanted to sort of like um, evoke that spirit of the sort of 1967, you know, a, a time that when we were coming through, we, which way should I jump through into that Manchester scene, that we that was very, very influential at that time. And he was live, reliving that experience, uh, you know, from the joyful part of it, but also the sinister kind of side of the, the, the San Francisco in the late 60s, you know uh, Manson and and on all that the family and all that kind of thing. So there is a sinister element to the mu- music in that track as well as a beautiful kind of psychedelic kind of um, feel as well. So uh, yeah, that that that's the vibe in that one. You know, you know, it was a very much a big influence that that feel of the late of West Coast late sixties for the uh, early milltown Brothers stuff. So yes, it was well, that, redolent of that period.
0: <laughs> I know that's uh, it's a bit it's like nothing like a party going slightly wrong with Charles Manson and the family, isn't it? Yes. Um, on the ranch. It's kind of I extreme. think Matthew's
1: quite fascinated by that old sort of kind of you know psychopaths and stuff oh, I don't mind saying that but it does seem <laughs> a bit in the lyric. But uh yes. no, 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 good fun to play on that one.
0: It's amazing, and then another track which is really amazing on it. Um, the gar- in is it in the garden? Oh God, I've lost it now. Um, in the garden, which was I think the la- yes in the garden. So again, is this one of Matthews' kind of? Yeah, um,
1: yeah, I, I, I think the the songwriting has changed a little bit. I think I think he and I used to write together quite. You know, when you know, we for example, which way should I do? Apple green. Here I stand. You know, always, they, they, we, we we would initially, I'd come up with a sort of set of chords and maybe some ideas, you know, with Melody and Matthew would very much take on the, 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 always the lyrically. But then in later years, I think if somebody's got a vision for the writing and he's the singer, then, then he kind of is, is the lead in the writing department. So, you know, I've tried to throw a few in there <laughs> over the years, but... Uh, uh, you know, but, but if somebody's got a strong vision, I think you always got to follow that. And uh, Matthew has on the last two albums. So that's where the, the 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 main songwriters come through. And I think also particularly on the last record, I have to give a lot of credit to James musically from a production point of view that he really uh, did bring a lot to the table from that. Um, uh, and, and he, you know, he's a writer as well. So uh uh, but, but lyrically, it's always mo- mostly been Matt Matthew's thing um so, yeah, uh, so that's so that, does that, he
0: sort that, of get the, the lyrics and then present it to you know individual members and you didn't add the the music? How does that kind <laughs> of process work?
1: well, um it, it, he he would probably uh, as you know, he would come up on a, on the acoustic guitar, have a set of chords, and maybe have an idea for a, a chorus quite often, or an idea, a strong idea for the hook, or and then write the lyric around the hook. But I think he he tends to to only write about something when he feels strongly about something, rather than trying to sort of force or, or shoehorn lyrics into sort of like melodies and what have you. But having said that, there have been many times when we've been sort of waiting for the the vocal part to be done and he's scratching around a, a studios on all fours writing lyrics on pieces of paper and we, yes. <laughs> we're waiting for them to do that. But uh, Did you get uh,
0: slightly, did you watch the, the Beatles film, Let It Be, you know, the eight hour special over Christmas last year where you would just watch them all sort of turn up after the new year to sort of work on the next album? I just wondered if you had been slightly curious and inspired by watching these legends in 1969, 1970, sort of thinking, right, we've got this space, we're going to have to try and do an album, and then seeing how they yeah. brought it together.
1: I mean, I'm always fascinated by that kind of thing, and the, the Stones, you know, and those Paris sessions, and when they're doing Sympathy for the Devil, and and, and 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 when you asked me about early awakenings in music, the, the Beatles, hearing their sort of best ofs, was about a 13, 14-year-old, massively inf- turned me on to, to music, so... Definitely. And I, I love all that process of watching how, you know, documentaries of bands in studios. I mean, there was one on Christine McVie last night. And um, I don't know if you saw that on BBC four on Fleetwood Mac and that whole, so I'm always fascinated by that. And I don't, I don't think specifically that that let it be documentary inspired as but uh, it's always great to be back together as a, as a, a group of friends and as a sort of a gang in the studio. And it's, it's, you know, when you're in the studio, it's probably its most intimate when you're in a fairly small, small space, yes. putting songs together. So uh, I, well, see, there was I a great,
0: There was a great series, wasn't there? The classic album series, which, regardless of the band, it's always fascinating to see Absolutely. them where they got the idea from, how they sort of they pull out all the tracks and you just hear the bass line. I mean, there's a brilliant one on, actually, this all good. But I just remember being fascinated with Black Sabbath because actually musically there was an awful lot of interesting things going on mm. under the music. And there was like, I think it was the bass player who wrote a lot of it. And he was, oh, no, Tommy, uh, um, the guitarist, Tommy Iona, who was like, oh, yeah, there was this kind of classical rift from i think the planets and he just took that and then he just kind of added something to it and Mm -hmm. and made that rift and it's like ah that's that's why you're probably much better than most heavy metal bands so
1: there's some melody in
0: there is there is some and thought you know it's like oh yeah we got this idea and there was this kind of hippie idea and you know we smoked a lot of drugs and we came up with this and it's a classic 50 years later so um yeah it's kind of interesting so what does that mean i mean obviously with a lot of bands i now speak to even though they're slightly scattered around the world somebody within the band has kind of learned how to mix in their garage are you still thinking as a sort of side project it's quite nice to occasionally sort of see if we can or you can sort of put another track together or another album together
1: yes I, I think so I think it, you know there's a sense of sort of like continuation and, and legacy and you know as long as we 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 want to and can do I think it is nice to to keep meeting up and 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 not necessarily having the pressure to put a record out, but just playing together. And we're planning to meet on the 16th of December again up in Burnley, where the, the three of us come from that area. So, um, and that's when this new Cherry Red compilation is coming out. So, the plan is to maybe play through a few tunes and maybe some of those early ones. And who knows, you know, we might start to go out and maybe do a couple of gigs to you know, as a retrospective celebration of those early songs and maybe do some new ones but uh you know I, i've got a garage band so i'm always attempting to, to <laughs> write tunes and, and what have you and uh, but i'd say james and barney are the ones who are particularly strong on the technical side of recording and they've they've continued that and actually barney's he's, he's playing keyboards for the animals at the moment so he's out on tour all over the world uh, doing that so does that feature doing- eric at the moment, it doesn't know it's it's only the drummer, I think, who's the <laughs> Richard on I That
0: was a but bit of
1: a on keys But he's 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 all over the place with him. He's doing brilliantly, you know, Australia and you know, he keeps whatsapping us from all these glamorous places and mocking yes. us with his fun. <laughs> God Excellent. bless him. No, him. no it's, it's
0: you know it's a good little <laughs> gig, isn't it? I do yeah. find it quite amusing because I know there was like Two versions of, I think, the Bay City Rollers. I think there used to be two versions of the suite. And I think the Roubettes had four. Mm. And I thought, wow, four versions. I managed to track down one of them. And it was like, you know, having to, you know, being quite subtle about what it's like like being one of the people who own the band you know own the name and oh yeah barclay james harvest that was a very diplomatic one because one bloke said well i tour and we do i just do my songs that i did for the band whereas the other bloke he does just he does all mine as well you know so it was like oh dear still got a few issues haven't we
1: (laughs) A lot of egos in balance. Aren't
0: they? Yes, it's like, yeah, well done. So, what does that, yeah? So, you've got some bits and pieces. I mean, if you could have just whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out in that interesting creative process, is there anything in particular that you would have just said, oh, that would have been worth knowing?
1: Uh, that's a good, good, good question. I, I, th- I think just to trust your instincts a bit more, don't, don't always be, you know, put off or, of or, or f- frightened by what you know bad press or what people say they you know, just to really trust your instincts and have a bit more confidence and be a bit more positive that's what i would have said to myself
0: yes did it feel a little bit you know when we went from the john major to new labor did you sort of feel a little bit like we should have been there as well as a band
1: what that, oh, that whole brick pop thing yeah yes. um, yeah yeah we we missed out on that that's for sure uh and you know other bands that we'd been around uh did particularly well like blur and an oasis so we played with blur quite a lot ocean color sea we played with them a few times but that's not to say that, that i'm not making a point that they totally deserved it because they were great bands and we saw them in in the, in the flesh and they were all of those bands are really really good bands with really good songs yeah i just think we, we were maybe a little bit unlucky and we perhaps didn't have the the profile, and we certainly didn't have their profile. That, that's for sure. But uh, I, I could let me put it this way: I, I could have seen songs like "Here I Stand" and "Apple Green," which way should I jump? Also doing quite well when some of those other songs were coming through in the sort of mid nineties. I, I would leave it at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. No, and and I think you know, for me, there was a, I mean, after doing my indie world, and then there was a certain amount of. I don't know what I was doing in that late decade, early '90s, but then sort of Spohrly was busy, and then sort of got to hear a lot more stuff in the the mid '90s. And being kind of excited because it was kind of guitar based music again, and I thought, you know, there was some, but yeah, like Pulp and Elastica, I thought were good. And I yeah. had a I had a real soft spot for My Life Story. I thought Jake was brilliant, and his little orchestra in the side there, and yeah, it was it was quite a nice period, and then it all went again and god knows what happened the next period but you know i think you just kind of go in and out don't you and um see whatever ever excites you but it's good it's good well anyway look simon thank you ever so much for this okay. it's this been amazing and if you want i can always send you the link and you i think you've got a facebook page and i can always um you can always post it wherever and, yeah um, please feel, uh, feel free you know
1: absolutely that'd be brilliant we certainly will I, i'm um I, th- I, d- I think you're in touch with the. Uh, was it John- Jonathan? Uh, I think
0: somebody said I am the keeper yeah. of the flame, and I went. Yeah, oh.
1: That's right. Yes, uh, that <laughs> Jonathan. Um, he, he probably. I'd, lo- I'd love to have a copy of myself, but also yeah. if, he, if you're in touch with him, please send it to him as well because he, he's. A bit- technically i'll get it up there quicker and
0: what I yes do, but... this is true but no i'll try and get it done very quickly otherwise things get a bit lost and forgotten sure, yeah. but yeah but look thank you for your time i'm pleased this just happened so quite quickly sometimes you've got to say look let's do it now let's just do it it's a friday oh, afternoon yeah, he's no, going to be doing it it's anything. a
1: great thing though you go add a little look, a look on your site and you've got some very interesting uh, interviews going on there so
0: it was funny yeah. you mentioned the about the redskins because like i said they're one of those bands yeah. i'd love to know and the other day i was doing an interview with a very obscure american band 2020 and i noticed that a member of that band had produced the Redskins. I thought, right, I'm going to have to find out a bit more about his life and then get on to the Redskins. And he, yeah, he became a producer. And he sort of talked about that particular experience. He came over from London, uh, from America to London to work on it. And it was one of those great moments in the studio where he said that the drummer was immediately like, mm, he's not quite the drummer we need for this. Mm-hmm. And so they had to get, I think it was Alan White who was in the style council sort of quickly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's a cruel... I've had a lot of stories about drummers. Issues with drummers has been quite a bit painful, isn't it? It's, so, a,
1: it's, a, it's a very hard job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've tried it a few times, and it's you it can be found out very quickly. <laughs> yes, drumming. if
0: you get a chance, the wedding present have got a film about their album George Best, and there's a, a, quite a bit on the drummer. And there's some you can see. We were on the,
1: we're the same management as the wedding present. Yeah,
0: yeah. excellent. Well, it's, it's good. Well, all these films from, like, the chills, the go-betweens, yeah. you know, they're all brilliant, aren't they? We all love them. So, um, anyway, look, have a great um, evening and, you. and winter. Yeah, you Take care. Thank, thank Keep you. Keep in touch. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was me in this, uh, conversation with Simon Nelson, one-time member of the Mealtime Brothers. All well, still is, actually. Um, if you want to know any more information, just go to the website, dot uk this has been the c86 show indeed it has if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram c86 show you'll find it um, if you do if you do keep it positive and groovy that's all i'm saying um, and also all these shows have been archived aren't you lucky so um, spotify itunes podbeam there are nearly 900 so um indie pop fill your boots anyway have a great week stay safe